Good evening. This is Cinema 60. If you don't mind, I'd like to go to bed. I've told you the light from the sitting room bothers me. Well, we certainly can't have anything bothering you, can we? If you don't want to go to bed, please get out. But I do want to go to bed, Marnie. I very much want to go to bed. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. We're five episodes from the last Kiss, Mary Kill episode, so I guess it's time for another. Love kissing, marrying, and killing. And we're up to the year 1964, which is Great a good, year. good year for movies. We've actually covered a lot of 1964 movies already on Cinema 60. Yeah, we had a whole episode, the 1964 musicals which is a, one of our best episodes, in my opinion. Yeah. It's a, it's a long one, but we also get to cover some of our absolute favorite movies in it. Well, I don't I, let, me, let me start by going down the list of the top 10 box office hits in America for 1964, and uh, a lot of these we've, we've done on the show. Number one, Mary Poppins. Number two, My Fair Lady. Number three, Goldfinger. Number four, The Carpetbaggers, a, uh, a Harold Robbins adaptation with George Papard. Number five is A Shot in the Dark, the second Pink Panther movie, which is solely focused on Inspector Clouseau because they realized when, when the first one was a hit, uh, it was because of Peter Sellers, so he was the focus of the second one. Number six was What a Way to Go, that Shirley MacLaine movie where where she marries all of my boyfriends and husbands. Yeah, I, I knew it was a favorite of yours. And it's a lot of movie spoofs, right? Like each each sequence is done in a different style. I kind of like that movie. But it's mostly just a like a party of costumes and attractive men. Mm-hmm. Dean Martin, Paul Newman. Paul Newman being murdered by robots. I cannot wait to talk <laughs> about that movie on Cinema 60. Look out for it in an upcoming episode. Uh, number seven was The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, number eight, The Pink Panther, which actually came out the year before, but it was still making some money into, uh, it got released a little later in the States and it was still making some money in 64. Uh, number nine, A Hard Day's Night. And ten, Father Goose, the Cary Grant, Leslie Caron romantic comedy. As far as movies that we've talked about on this show that, that weren't in the top ten, Dr. Strangelove, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Night of the Iguana, Nothing But a Man, Black God, White Devil, Red Desert, Fistful of Dollars, Night Must Fall, Band of Outsiders, Viva Las Vegas, Robin and the Seven Hoods. All of those came out in 1964. Wow. Yeah. Did you take note of any movies from 64 that you're particularly fond of that we haven't discussed yet on the show? I think you just mentioned all of them. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's the other ones that uh, you know I'm fond of, we're going to discuss in this uh, episode anyhow, because yeah. as it previous Kiss Mary Kills, we chose a movie that we wanted to try, we chose a movie that we love, and then we chose a movie we hate, and we're going to talk about all of those. And the one thread that holds these movies together is the uh, 1964. Or there's another thread, and we'll figure it out as we go on. Well, I'll spoil one of those threads right now and let everybody know that uh, all the English language choices are, are Jenna's and uh, all of my picks are, are foreign language. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but uh, 
It's called laziness. (laughs) I think you're just not as much of an intellectual as I am. (laughs) I'm actually not going to argue with that, (laughs) though. I will say that at least I, uh, my, my Mary was like, is one of these like, you know, talk your ear off kind of movies, which I do think whenever you speak the language that it's shot in, it's always more engaging than when you have to like speed read subtitles, but that's all I got. That's true. And it's definitely not an obvious choice for a favorite of 64. But let's uh, let's get started with the movie that you had been wanting to see for a while from 1964. The Train. by John Frankenheimer and starring Burt Lancaster as a French guy which is as ridiculous <laughs> as it sounds but he does a good job I'm not knocking him but he's fine but he's far from French yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've been curious about this movie for a couple reasons number one this podcast hit me to giving a crap about John Frankenheimer because I love seconds so much so I was curious to see more movies by him. And it was a big budget film, World War II plot. And it's all about trains. <laughs> <laughs> and I love trains. I'm a big train fan. My father is a big train fan. And I grew up with model train sets and uh, actually a really awesome model train set that was wired for electricity and is actually about the main coastal my dad built it from scratch in our basement and it's really glorious and cool. And there's some train loving magazine that has photos of me as like a two year old playing with it. It was that cool. It's still there, but it's, it's that great. Um, so I have a soft spot for trains. My dad was also a big fan of toy trains as a kid. It didn't really carry into adulthood at all, but he always tried to get me into it. And I didn't really see the appeal too much. Or trains in, in general, like, I, you know, they're fine. But this movie is really, it, it kind of got me excited about trains a little bit. It's <laughs> sort of train porns. Some of these sequences, they really get into the nitty gritty of how the, the switching yards work. And I, I got a little thrill out of that. Oh, my God. Exactly. The way that this movie portrays trains is so good. Like, and we're totally going to get into that. But, yeah, I mean, this movie has it all. It has armored trains. It has mm-hmm. fancy artwork. It has Nazis getting their comeuppance. And uh, yeah, there's a reason that Train Magazine apparently ranked this number one in the 100 Greatest Train Movies list, <laughs> wow. which I found as a fact on IMDb. And I'm just going to blindly repeat it because it just gave me way too much joy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also dying to know what other 100 Greatest Train Movies there are besides like the four train movies I can think of. But, oh, please go. Please, if you, if no, you know. <laughs> no, I was just going to list train movies, and there's really no need because there, I could I could go on and on and on. There's like four. Uh, no. Were the there. trains the main thing? Yeah. Pretend to Yuma. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Vanishes, Shanghai Express. That's lots of great train movies. Well, fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the plot of this movie is that it's the end of World War II and knowing that they're about to lose the, and we're in France again, knowing that they're about to lose, the Nazis decide to ship all of the France's best degenerate artwork to, which is, you know, AKA all of the French masterpieces. They want to ship it all to Germany because they know France will pay anything to get it back. So it's a good investment, even though they, you know, clearly the Nazis have disregarded this as not real art, but come on, they're no, they're no dummies. And uh, Paul Schofield plays the German Colonel von Waldheim, who is in charge of getting this train to Germany, while Burt Lancaster plays La Biche, a French railway inspector and uh, eventual reluctant recruit into the resistance. So the film is following La Biche as he is following this train and all of the French people involved who are working on the railroad are trying their best to stall this train without overtly stalling the train. And uh, meanwhile, the resistance is sort of humming along on the sides of this entire operation, doing their best to help or to provide any sort of support as they go along. They hear the Allies are going to show up any second, so they keep trying to delay, and but the Allies don't show up, so it just sort of escalates. Right. Yeah. And so it's basically this is meant to like when I say it takes place at the end of World War Two, I mean, like days, <laughs> mm-hmm. any day World War Two is meant to be over and the Germans are getting out of France because they, they know that it's a matter of uh, hours, really. Yeah. Like you said, the, this movie kills it with the trains. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, in general, the cinematography in this movie is amazing. It really is really awesome. It, it, there's amazing blocking. So. There's like amazing use of light. Uh, it reminded me a lot of Sergei Yurashevsky, who was, you know, the cameraman for The Cranes Are Flying and Letter Never Sent, which we covered on Cinema 60. And a bit of James Wong Howe, who's, you know, on, on seconds. Because there's a lot of those crane shots and there's like sharply angled blocking and there's like people wandering into frames uh, in all three dimensions of the frame and you know, shots that feel dynamic, even when all they're doing is like just lightly pushing in on a character's expression. Yeah, I was really impressed with how this movie was shot. And I think there's a real consistency with John Frankenheimer. He's got, I mean, he did four real classics in a row, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, The Train, and then Seconds. And they're all these beautiful black and white movies. They all have different cinematographers the one on this is Jean Tournier, who who I don't know anything about, but it, they've all got a really similar look, and all what you're describing there, this you know, depth of field. You've got people in the extreme foreground and, and things going on in the extreme background, and it's all very carefully planned out. Like if, it, it's it seems so cinematic, which is surprising because Frankenheimer came from this TV background. He was like one of the great golden age of TV directors, and then he, but then he hit the big screen and. He just really seems to know what to do with a camera. Really striking images. I mean, the best part of this, too, is that he makes all the trains feel like they're, you know, as you said, like beautiful to look at. They also feel like they're alive. Like they feel like wild horses in the Wild West or something. Like, I, I you know, who knew <laughs> that you could get so much drama and suspense on something that is traveling on a set course? <laughs> <laughs> But he does. He really makes them feel like a lot like these living creatures. It's wonderful. I mean, if you've ever I don't know if you've ever seen a like a steam powered coal powered train in real life. There's actually 
in Maine, there there is a cool museum that that has a, like a small one that it, it kind of tout like it it trots it oh, out. Yeah, it's a, the... like super for children. It's for like children under five, basically. But like and me. <laughs> but they're so cool to see because they are these like just these massive moving machines and they're just really majestic looking. But yeah, I mean this movie captures that. And if you if you're listening to this and you're like Jenna, you're <laughs> you're crazy. You got to watch this movie because I'm it, the way that they shoot trains is it really is I can I can see why it was the number one train movie because the train is a character. It it feels like a living breathing character as much as Burt Lancaster. <laughs> yeah, well each each engineer they focus on has this like passion for their engine <laughs> like Right. And, and you that really carries over into the audience. You really like you're as worried about the trains getting hurt as you are the human beings. And then what's great about too is like the story in this is not I, I you know, I was sort of expecting for you know, you I, I feel like I expect in general from movies about Nazis that that are of course written by uh, you know, the allied powers, <laughs> the the winners of the war, you tend to expect them to be kind of moralistic and pandering to a degree uh which is you know i get (laughs) but this movie is so grim and and it's really grounded in the reality of war and the actuality of death which is something i just didn't expect for a movie that contains about nine thousand explosions (laughs) that first big explosion to me was it made me laugh out loud there's one where they're trying to get the train slowed down enough so that the tracks will be bombed by allied planes that they know are, are coming in, but they can't, they don't want to bomb the train because it's carrying, you know, the national pride and heritage of France inside, which is all of these paintings. And so the scene is, which is amazing to look at too, because it looks like they really are blowing up the entire train yard, but it was hilarious because it was just like, that scene in Hot Rod when Andy Samberg trips and falls down a mountain for five minutes. <laughs> it's just never ending. It's just like, boom, 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 boom. You're like, oh, my God. Like, my notes for that movie, like, in this part, just say, oh, my God, like, five times. <laughs> well, and then Michelle Simon, the uh, the classic genre noir actor, he's in, uh, you know, Budo Saved from Drowning and lots of, like, amazing 30s French films is the engineer who won't stop the train and, and, and bail out so that he doesn't get killed. He, you know, he, he keeps that train going. He goes full blast through that train yard just so that he, uh, he can get through it before the, the bombs fall on the, on the train yard. It's his big heroic moment. It's pretty exciting. What did you think about this movie? I have trouble with Nazi movies. Like, I think it's just so easy to say, okay, I want to make a movie where we don't feel bad about people getting killed, so let's make the bad guys Nazis so we don't even have to explain why <laughs> we can kill them with impunity. And right. so many feel that way to me. And this this was not that at all. I mean, you don't get much in the way of Nazis in general. You really just get this one Colonel von Waldheim played by Paul Schofield, a typical Nazi in his ruthlessness and how little he cares about human life. But he also is the one who wants to degenerate art. And the rest of the Nazis actually don't even 
care about this stuff. They think it's foolish for him to work so hard to get this stuff back to Germany. But when he explains the value of this stuff, then, then the Nazis are interested. But yeah, it's sort of focused on this one particular Nazi. So it didn't, it wasn't a big, uh, you know, Nazi slaughter fest like we often get. There really isn't much Nazi death at all in this. No, not really. You, you see everyone and all the French keep dying. And it's powerful in that in that regard. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of what this movie is about. Why are these people dying to protect this art? And is is the what's the value of human life? Is it worth all these people dying to, to save the the pride of France? I mean, it's a good movie. I think people should check it out if they haven't seen it before. So I won't spoil the really like... Total badass ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a brilliant ending. Like it really like gets you thinking about these issues. Yeah, I won't spoil it. You should definitely watch this. I'm, I, I'll say that I, as a recommendation, I'm surprised that John Huston didn't take this one because it seems right up his alley on the on the fuck authority bit. Yeah, but once it really got deep into the the train porn, I got I was sold on this movie. Um, <laughs> once I realized it was that was the the real focus, even more than the art itself. Like you get. A lot of like loving shots of all this this beautiful artwork right at the beginning but it, it doesn't love the art nearly as much as it loves the trains yeah i think to see the this artwork that i think most people will look at and cringe when they see bombs falling anywhere near the the idea of this artwork being out in the open like that and then having it juxtaposed with everyone dying in order to protect it was was super powerful and interesting in a way that and the film doesn't hammer it over your head like uh you have even um part of the resistance is are people who are not really who are questioning why they're even part of the resistance like uh gene moreau mm -hmm. who plays an innkeeper who ends up uh, being part of this because she covers for burt lancaster who is sort of sneaking out in the middle of the night to do things and then comes back and she has to, to pretend like nothing that he was there and she saw him and all that sort of stuff and and she's super reluctant she has doesn't want anything to do with it and at the same time there's like this pull you know it's like she doesn't even know about the train and yet she doesn't really want to backstab her fellow uh frenchman well even bert lancaster does uh, when he's first approached to, to protect these paintings he said no it's not worth anybody getting killed to protect this stuff he eventually comes around and it's it's mostly because of he, he sees how important it is to his fellow resistance uh, fighters. And I think that's part of why it works to have this super American dude playing a Frenchman. It's because he doesn't seem to have the same French pride that these other guys do. And he eventually comes around. And I, th I think that's why this odd casting does work. He's uh, good in it. Yeah, he, he's definitely not bad. He's just... <laughs> He's just not, he's like never French at no point, do you, even with the name Labiche. But yeah, I mean, there is a, in a way too, like you said, it, it works because I feel like the, this is a movie that's about fighting for freedom, but not in like a corny flag waving kind of way, even though, of course, if you're fighting for the freedom of your own country, it's inherently nationalistic, but it definitely never loses sight of the body count. And it was a, it was a strong, powerful movie. I was, I was really impressed. Yeah, inspired by a true story, I guess, but but highly, highly embellished, uh, from what I understand. Mainly because Burt Lancaster wanted to get to do his acrobatics in there, I think. <laughs> you know, slide down ladders and jump around the train yard. My selection for my movie I most wanted to see from 1964 that I hadn't before is Welcome 
or no trespassing. Klimov, who is mostly only known in the West as the director of Come and See, the really brutal World War II movie from the 80s that's told from the, the child's perspective. And if you've seen it, you will never, ever forget it. And I'll just say real fast, I never, ever would have guessed <laughs> until I looked at the director and saw that. I never would have guessed it. But at the same time, there's definitely clear visual parallels, but like the tone of this movie is just so dramatically different. Yeah. I mean, other than having a, a child's perspective, which is the same in both movies, they're pretty much nothing alike content wise. This is a really slapstick heavy comedy. Like it, it feels really inspired by silent film comedy. Like a lot of the jokes are really visual and it's set in this uh, young pioneer camp. So, you know, just a summer camp for Soviet children <sighs> And this one uh, sort of rebellious child, Anoshkin, doesn't uh, want to just swim in this tiny little area that's set aside for, for the campers to swim in. And they're all kind of jammed together like sardines. So he, he swims across the channel to the, uh, the beach where the locals swim. And, uh, and for that reason, he's kicked out of the camp. This isn't the first time he's caused some trouble. And then Comrade Dinan, really the only villain in the movie. And he's not even like, he's not so bad. He's just sort of, uh, you know, this follow the rules a sort of fall in line with party politics kind of guy like he's, he's just your typical camp director you know he's not warm or fuzzy <laughs> yeah so he kicks uh Inoshkin out but Inoshkin can't go back to his grandmother who, with whom he lives uh because it'll break her heart and he has this fantasy sequence of her dying on the spot when she finds out he was kicked out of camp and everyone's blaming him for his grandmother's death so he sneaks back into the camp and just hides out under the stage, under this outdoor stage, and everybody but the camp director knows that he's there, and uh, they're sort of helping him to like stay fed and and uh, and keep him as his presence a secret from the director. And there are a few other, like the camp nurse is kind of you're really stressed out about uh, diseases from the local kids uh, you know, infecting the the camp children, and uh, so there's a lot of talk of quarantining uh, the, the kids and, and not having the parents come to parents day because he doesn't they, they don't want to risk infection and that all hit home because of our, our, our current uh, situation so yeah just the you know the, the couple of adults in the camp don't know that Anoshkin's there but everybody else seems to and want you know and they love him and they want to keep him keep him around and it's just you know that's all there is to it really it's and it's just sort of a setup where they can throw in a lot of visual gags and it's it, it's really like there's nothing that that Klimov doesn't do with the camera like it's very like there's a lot of like, handheld stuff where, where when the kids are splashing in the water and it's all like you are there kind of thing and there's a lot of like a pig gets loose at one point and there's like pig cam where it's like following the pig really quickly as, as the entire camp is chasing after the pig and and there's a lot of you know there's there's this whole sort of magic trick aesthetic to the whole thing. Like a lot of the kids are practicing magic throughout. And then a lot of, you know, it sort of juxtaposes that with, with some camera trickery. And it, it all has, I mean, it's a sound film, but it's it, it has this sort of silent 
Soviet comedy feel to it. Quickly edited. Yeah, it's very cartoonish in a great way. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's everything that I love about Russian cinema and that it's like chock full of these amazing takes, uh, you know, and in, in inventive angles and really fun sets and costumes and like a really solid sense of irony. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I love pig cam. You could if you shoot a whole movie in pig cam, I'll watch it. But it's so masterful. Like, I feel like the only thing that might keep a, a Western audience from enjoying this movie as much as you know any like you know marx brothers movie or, or something is is that uh it's really steeped in in soviet culture and and you what these children are rebelling against is not exactly you know soviet authority it's just sort of this camp authoritarianism like it's not i don't feel like it's 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 clearly a satire but it's not directed at soviet authority at all it's it's almost hard to put your finger on what the target of the satire is and and that's i think might be a cultural thing you know it's not alienating at all it's still really funny but uh but it's very russian it just felt more to me like a like a real hyper focus on just the culture of these camps like it felt like i never actually went to sleepaway camp (laughs) but um you know, I think that like there is this there is a degree of these summer camps or, you know, holiday camps or these institutions that America didn't totally have, though we certainly have summer camp institution. But I feel like it's one of those like if you've been in this situation and you did this as a child, you're going to recognize like that one kid who's always coming up and saying, oh, what are you guys doing? And like that one kid is always getting into trouble and that one kid who's. Uh, you know, always spying on everybody or the camp counselor who just has to follow the rules even when they don't make sense or like, you know, sort of it felt a little bit more like that, which I think in itself is, of course, as you said, a, a hidden attack on authoritarianism, but it's certainly not a hyper secret fuck the government. <laughs> it's not setting out to do anything other than basically tell the story of of what it's like to be a child i think i I mean obviously i could very much be missing a ton of this because i'm not a russian child in the 60s but i don't know it felt to me it was like a a solid children's movie that didn't talk down to its audience it felt very much like kind of for kids (laughs) by someone who once was a kid (laughs) yeah i mean i didn't feel like i wasn't the intended audience for it because i was an adult it's I think it's just a just a really solid comedy and every shot is so carefully constructed and i it, i've i've heard it suggested that this movie inspired moonrise kingdom and and you can see it like just the energy of it and the the kids against the adults sort of thing and how everybody's sort of working together to help this one kid who's kind of in trouble and and that's i mean if there is a communist message a you know a pro-socialism message in this thing it does seem to be that it's like you know it's all of these people except for the director um are are just working together to keep anoshkin from being found out keep his grandmother from finding out that he's been kicked out and and the entire camp is the hero of this story there's right it's all focused on anoshkin this one kid but it's just a, a, a ton of colorful characters in there that are all kind of working together to to make this happen so it's a it's a whole lot of fun 
Yeah, I love I love the dream sequences for sure. I love the you know his dream sequence about as you mentioned the grandmother dying on on his return, <laughs> and it's like her she she faints when she sees him and she like falls right into her own casket and suddenly everyone's on the street in a funeral march and like marching in the form of a question mark, you know, and asking like what like how how could this have happened and the you know poor Nushkin is <laughs> right there. <laughs> You know, and he decides, I can't do this to her. I loved that. And I loved uh, at the end, there was that scene in the end where all the kids are putting on, like, you know, the the camp play for Parents' Day, which is why Inoshkin has to come back because his grandmother's going to be there for Parents' Day. And But uh, they're, they're, like, doing something about space and everyone's dressed up uh, with, like, a, a rocket and, like, a starship. And they're, like, they're singing the... The song, this is the song uh, Yuri Gargarin sang in space. <laughs> you know, it's just the Dobie children's song. And they like they roll this thing out. And then uh, the camp director rushes in with, the, you know, two inspectors or something. It seems like guys who, who are going to approve basically to, to put a stamp on whether or not he's doing a good job. And he makes them restart the whole song. And they, they totally bungle it from there because they've lost the sense of pacing and timing. So it was it was cute. It was really I really this made me laugh for sure. What was your favorite scene? Well, I was I was going to I was going to talk about that dream sequence where uh Anoshkin thinks that possibly he could be forgiven by Dean and if he has to give uh the the uh the director a blood transfusion. So there's this this fantasy of them both on hospital beds and the blood's being sucked out of Anoshkin's body and he's shrinking, you know, shriveling up into into nothing and Dean and is uh you know, it's blowing up into, you know, into a blood-filled balloon. Yeah, so we won. We picked a couple winners. We I did. Like both of those movies. That was exciting. Uh, however, your Mary pick, I can't say that I'm, I'm a huge fan of this one. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Americanization of Emily? This one, directed by uh, Arthur Hiller, with a screenplay written by Patty Chayefsky, aka the uh, you know you might you may know him from Marty and Network, and my favorite movie, Altered States. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Paint Your Wagon? Oh God, yeah, Paint Your Wagon. He did that one too. Yeah, this was adap- it's adapted from a novel, but I think that Chayefsky made a lot of changes and he really personalized it by playing up like a degree of, of comedy and his own personal politics. So I, I think of this as Patty Chayefsky's Catch-22. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not as good, but it is very much on the same thought process. Maybe, but until it backtracks at the end with its anti-war message a bit, but... And that was one of my issues with it. We're going to talk. But I'll about let you. That. I'll let you get into the the story before I before I start complaining about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this stars uh, James Garner and Julie Andrews. If that entices you at all, and this is of course is the same year she did Mary Poppins, as we mentioned, and you can listen to our 1964 musical episode for more information about that movie or a really weird double feature. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, this is a movie about uh, Lieutenant Commander Charlie Madison, who's played by Garner, and he is a dog robber 
which the scroll at the beginning of the picture tells us is essentially a, like a go-between sweet talker who procures luxuries to keep high-ranking officials satiated yeah. <laughs> with fancy food and sexy ladies, basically, while, while everyone else in the world essentially is rationing. Uh, and so he's in England on assignment, and his driver ends up being Emily, who is Julie Andrews, and she is the only woman in the entire unit that slaps him in the face when he slaps her on the ass. <laughs> um, so great start. Great start. Yeah. Um, and of he course, absolutely has it coming, though. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> such, a, such a sleazeball. I did not find Garner very charming in this movie at all. But yeah, he's a you did. He's a total. No, no, no. He's a creep. <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, it's like if in real life. I would have slapped him like Emily and then the re- and then the rest of the movie would have been over. I would have been like, yeah, you're going to transfer me. Screw this guy. <laughs> but, um, and then probably not slap, probably just a good old slug to the face. But then he calls her a prude and, and she reconsiders. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get him. You got to warm him up first. <laughs> so of course they fall in love eventually. They reach an understanding with each other. When she realizes that he's less of a creep, even though he is a creep, as we've already established. But he's also James Garner, so he is charm. She writes him off as being like a hyper-American American. But she realizes that he's actually cynical enough about America and consumerism and the brutality of war so that she she warms up to him. Because her backstory is that she lost her husband, her brother, her father uh, already in the war. So she's torn between staying the sort of stoic British course of rah-rah, or giving into sort of his American uh, cynicism and, and cowardice, as he calls it. He has no loyalty to the idea of dying for valor. He thinks that that's completely useless. And being part already of the Navy and being part of this you know, war machine and, and being the sort of official person who is all about finding loopholes, I think that you know that's also part of what informs his, his take on all of this. And the general plot, that's not even the plot of the movie. The plot of the movie is that Charlie's main boss is this rear admiral, William Jessup. He's played by Melvin Douglas, and he has a mental breakdown where he decides that the Air Force is overshadowing the importance of the Navy. So he declares that he not only wants a naval officer to be the first person to die on Omaha Beach on D-Day, but he wants it filmed so that they can work a PR stunt around it and have eventually a tomb of the unknown sailor, which will be great for the Navy. <laughs> so, of course, in his madness, he chooses Charlie to be uh, that guy. who, in uh, Charlie, who's literally the last person in the country that has an interest in dying for a PR stunt uh, and certainly has no interest in dying to prop up the Navy. My man Flint is in this, uh, <laughs> James Coburn, <laughs> is uh, another naval officer. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to kill it in the paperwork. Don't worry about it. But of course, you know, things get nuts and nobody really stands up to this guy who's clearly having a mental breakdown. And I like this movie enough that I don't want to spoil it either, even though we'll talk a little bit about the ending because Bart already brought it up and I have to beat him down. But um, you can kind of see where this is going. So Yeah, Charlie ends up on omaha beach and it's mainly because his his best bud uh, james coburn bus <laughs> his name is bus and he's an even sleazier womanizer than than charlie is but bus has this uh this sense of 
patriotism and, and honor and, and loyalty to the Navy. And he makes them uh, both get on the on, you know, storm, storm the beaches of Normandy with, with the uh, with the Navy in the least convincing way possible. I really I mean, as, as much as I dislike Charlie, I hated Bus even more. Like he's there's this ongoing gag where Charlie keeps busting into Bus's room and he's with a different British uh, bird who's uh, you're naked in his bed and and, uh, and Charlie's all like, oh, I've seen this a million times and is, is totally unimpressed. But uh, the birds go, go have, you know, are different states of shock or, 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 you know, they don't care. And it's just, you know, an ongoing really gross joke. But Coburn is so hateable and I think you're supposed to not find him hateable. I don't know. He's definitely hateable. That's on purpose. So what, what's your beef uh, with this movie? And then I'll tell you why I like it. Here's my main beef. People don't like Charlie, and then he gives a big speech, and then they love him. Like, that's how he wins over Emily. Like, she she accuses him of being American and just caring about Hershey bars and, and getting these supplies to, to the generals while everybody else is uh, having to starve themselves. And, and he, he gives this whole... I, I mean, I, I after a while, I you know, by, by the time Charlie gives his fourth endless speech i've, I've kind of tuned out what he's saying but uh but later he meets emily's mother who is sort of uh, very distressed by uh by the war because her husband and, and and son were killed and sort of has this illusion that her husband is still alive and then charlie brings up how stupid it is to die in wars and and you know just goes on and on and on and and all of a sudden emily's mother is uh her mental health has returned and she totally is on board with Charlie's philosophy of cowardice. And that's the real dramatic structure of this movie that bugged the hell out of me. But you love it in Marnie. <laughs> Cause I, I can uh, see you can, you can call me on it now because I'm going to say something that then when I talk about Marnie, I'm going to say, this is what I hated about Marnie. But I think what's kind of great about this movie is you can't underestimate the power of just sheer American calling shit as it is. And Walking into a room of British people and pointing out the obvious thing that they don't want to address, you know, I mean, it's not strictly a British issue. <laughs> it's clearly an American issue, too, because there's plenty of Americans in this movie that have the same issue where they're blinded by their nationalism and they're blinded by how they're meant to act and how they're meant to be uh, reacting and feeling in the situation because, ah, oh, wartime, ah, oh, this is wartime. You got to, uh, everyone, uh, you know, she, like in the beginning, the first one of the first interactions is Charlie uh, offers Emily a, a, a Hershey bar. And she says, well, my country, and it's like a nice gesture. At this point, they've sort of, they, they've at least made up for the slap situation. And she says, you know, you bought me chocolate, but I don't want it because my country is at war and we are doing without right now. And she says straight up, like, don't Americanize me. Like, I, I don't need this chocolate, you know? And it's like, well, like, why? Like, it's here. And that's kind of what I love about this movie is, to me, this movie is about Patty Chayefsky just sort of letting loose uh, in a way that we don't ever, we rarely see in mainstream cinema in this way because it's this sort of righteous American anger at calling things out you know, in a progressive voice too. you know, calling out the war machine and calling out the pointlessness of it all in a way that like, I feel like you, you rarely see outside of even like World War One poetry. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's just this really angry movie. And that unfortunately, I'm <laughs> completely sympathetic to it. 
because I just think there's there's all these good lines that Charlie has, and, and you know, I, there is a degree of like, yes, he comes in and he he gives a speech, and then people get over it, but I, it's not such a fast change, and I feel like that was one of the issues I had the first time I watched it, but then now that this is the second time I've watched this movie, and I I actually found Julie Andrews way more convincing because I thought there was so much more about her sort of internal battle between that stoic Britishness and then the cracks that have already formed because of her life experience. And because of that, it's hard to keep your emotional armor up when you've lost like your, (laughs) your father, your brother and your husband. And you have to sit here still and, and like, you know, be polite and take the ass slap or whatever. It's like she's cracking in, in her own way, which in this movie takes place in a sort of sexual liberation in a strange way. But, you know, it's not exactly romantic or feminist, but it's an interesting character evolution. Yeah. And she talks about her sexuality pretty openly. Like she, it's, um, it's not an erotic movie at all, but it's very frank about sex and female desire. And and I, I kind of like that about Emily. You know, she definitely was a, a far more interesting character than Charlie. And it's not... I like what Charlie stands for. I thought the message of this film was great. It's It's got a really fierce anti-war message, talking about how stupid it is to die in a war. And I agree, totally agree. I don't think it addressed it in, the, in a terribly effective way, especially by the end, where I won't, I won't talk about how it ends, but it, James Garner is kind of screwed over by the Navy in the end. And he is rightfully really angry about it. And he's going to expose the Navy, the war machine, and, and just tell the world what, what they've done to him. And uh, and Emily sort of talks him down and says, well, think, then you're you're shaming all the people who did die in this war. And you know, so it sort of like brings back this idea of heroism and, and, you know, whole support our troops sort of thing. Like, you don't have to support the war, but support our troops sort of thing. And, and uh I, I felt like that really undercut the message of this movie. It's nineteen sixty four. Like that's the thing. I don't know that there was so much that. I mean, I'm I'm shocked that he got even as much through as he did. I feel like this movie sort of it weaves and hides its anger around an antihero character who is staunchly anti propaganda and he's and you know and gunning for that war machine, but it walks the line like just enough to get all of his monologues through while still maintaining the facade of being a not too anti-war because but but I don't think I don't think there's a way to really watch this movie and think like well god bless the troops. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there's all of these monologues which I mean you could call them forced because they are forced. I mean like there's many times where like he's going on these rants, but that's what I mean about it feels like Patty Chayefsky just like going to town. He's like going hog wild on these things. I but he has such good points. Like you know, Charlie's whole thing about being a coward, he talks about how it's profane to enjoy the war, to sit there and act like, you know, that your death means so much. He says, I, I don't think there's anything noble in, in widows. He says, you know, I, I don't think that there's such thing as having 10 million people butchered in the name of humanity. He says that it's not that, you know, people talk about the unnaturalness of war, but it's not war that's unnatural, it's virtue. He says it's valor and virtues which are unnatural and, and forced upon horrible situations to justify them he doesn't want to perpetuate the concept of a war hero and he doesn't want to make heroes of the dead because it just perpetuates war by exalting its uh, sacrifices and i and, and that's like a such a wild statement 
to hear in out of James Garner's mouth. It's impressive to even get these through, even if it kind of undercuts me caring about Charlie, the character. But I do think that, that this movie is sort of gunning for comedy more than drama, which is another thing that I feel like I noticed more this time around than I did the first time, which I maybe came in thinking it was deadly serious because of these very serious but ironic kind of speeches that Charlie gives. But the movie, it really does dissolve in a, in a way that Catch-22 kind of dissolves into this like farce it you know by the end I think part of why Coburn becomes sort of unbelievable is that he just gets super like yeah yeah well he you know the the admiral told us to do it we gotta do it we're gonna do it right now and he just like goes from there and just like continues to heighten that sentiment to the point in which he's screaming at Charlie on on Omaha Beach you yellow belly to sapsucker whatever whatever he calls him You know, like, you know, you get out there and you die for your country kind of stuff, which, uh, you know, I don't know that anyone, I hope nobody said in the heat of battle, but <laughs> God knows. But it's it's a caricature, you know, I mean, all these in the, in the, the Admiral's a caricature for sure. And and so I think there is a weird mix of like Emily definitely is not a caricature. She has these sort of important emotions that she's working through and James Garner is charming you know in his way but he's also a little has a little bit more depth but he's kind of the bridge between the world of caricatures and the real world I suppose so it is it is kind of a weird mix of things I was just very impressed with Chayefsky's anger (laughs) (laughs) well the real difference between this and uh, Catch-22 is that the comedy works in (laughs) Catch-22 whenever this goes for comedy it's just not funny I mean a lot of the comedy is just sex farce and it's it seems very old-fashioned and gross but I I like it best when it's being dramatic and it's also interesting that the plot hinges on a high-ranking official going insane just like Dr. Strangelove from the same year. Right. But the satire hits its, its mark a, a lot more convincingly in Dr. Strangelove than it does in this movie. This doesn't go for the absurdist angle that Strangelove does, and maybe that's part of the problem and why I like Strangelove so much more. But to have them come out the same year and have certain plot elements that are similar, uh, really, this movie comes off even worse, you know, thanks to that comparison. I guess for me, it just sort of boils down to, and don't get me wrong, Catch-22 is absolutely superior. To <laughs> but for me, it just kind of, it boils down to like, what I love about Yozarian as a character, even though Charlie is more of a like minder binder mixed with Yozarian in a way, but it's like taking someone who is cerebral and, you know, wants to argue their way out of death and just like dropping them in the middle of a minefield. You know, like I, I get a real kick out of that type of character. And also it's just there's I feel like there's something here about the pure evil that we find in this world is sort of born from the banal. That true heroism is is sort of also just born of lies and split second impulse decisions. And whether or not you want to like pontificate on the, the morality of those seconds is like your own prerogative. But it doesn't change the plain fact of the matter that you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's that degree of bluntness is what really drove me to loving this movie is 
you know, just just the fact that Charlie kind of lays it out like you're dead and you died because you talked yourself into dying for a cause that by design doesn't care about you and, you know, in fact, hates you as an individual and, and works to erase you as an individual and yet talks about how, oh, your individual sacrifice is so meaningful and et cetera. And I mean, and there's plenty of good arguments against I mean, I think World War II was a very worthwhile <laughs> war. <laughs> so I, I'm not trying to get too crazy on that. But I do think that there's this, I guess maybe it's in part that the philosophical concepts of everything maybe versus the reality of things. And to merge the two is, is sort of inherently problematic, I guess. But, you, but it is. It's merged. That's, what, that's how life is. Yeah. Well, as far as movies that address what are these people dying for, um... I'll definitely take the train over the Americanization of Emily. It definitely made me think a lot more about heroism and, and uh, you know, what the value of human life is. Like, it seems like that's that's sort of at the at the heart of the Americanization of Emily, but it never quite gets there, at least for me, anyway. Yeah, I feel that. But you chose a movie that was even more depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, especially in these times of quarantine. You sent me a, a text, I think, and you were angry that I made you watch Woman in the Dunes. stuck in your house was to see a movie about this guy who's stuck in this house in the middle of these sand dunes against his will. But uh, yeah, this is directed by Hiroshi Tishigahara, based on a novel by Kobo Abe, very famous Japanese novelist, uh, worked with Tishigahara on a few films. Face of Another was based on one of uh, Abe's novels. Uh, Pitfall was an original screenplay that he wrote for Tishigahara. Yeah, this is just a movie that is visually stunning and just the images from it have have lived in my subconscious for forever, you know, since I originally saw it in, in college or whenever I did see it. And I've just been dying to see it again, to see like it was I almost forgot what the what the concept of the movie was. Or I, like I I remember what the story was, but I didn't remember what the point of it really was. And I, I was dying to see it to see if it was more than just this collection of really sensual images of these windswept dunes and, uh, you know, the close-up of the, of the sand stuck to, to sweaty skin. And and it's, it's it's just such a tactile movie, and that's really what you take away from this. But I also, it, there there is a, I mean, this is, it's a movie about the human condition and how... You know, we're all kind of stuck in these lives, and we haven't chosen these these lives for ourselves, um, but we have to make the best of it. It's the story of this teacher from Tokyo who goes to the ocean. He's he's a an entomologist by uh, that's his hobby. So he collects bugs, and he's trying to find this one particular beetle that should be living in the, these dunes. And so he's he's hunting around and. Uh, he ends up staying out later in the dunes than he had intended, and the you know a local tells him, "Oh, you um, you you'll never catch the bus back to town now. You won't. You 
guess you don't have any place to stay. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out something. And then the local offers him a place to stay in one of the, their, the houses, one of the villagers' houses. And he's like, oh, okay, I, I'd, yeah, I'd lo love to see how, how you folks live. So that they take him to this house that's set at the bottom of this dune pit. And this woman is living alone there. And this uh, Junpai, the entomologist, goes down to this pit. There's a rope ladder down. And the locals actually pull the ladder up. And he, he thinks that's a little odd, but assumes that they'll drop it back down from when he needs to leave the next day. But turns out, no, he's stuck there. This was, a, this was their whole plan to get him to become the quote-unquote husband to this woman whose job is to fill buckets with sand so that the, the locals can sell them to construction companies uh, at, at a reduced rate. You know, <laughs> something ridiculous. I mean, really, it's just setting up this whole Sisyphusian task for them to do, that just filling buckets day, with sand day after day after day, and that's all there is in their lives, just filling these buckets with sand. And and so he tries to escape, and, and you know, his he's dead set on, on, on getting out of there and re returning to Tokyo. And he just assumes that he'll be missed, that the school will send a, a search party for him, but uh, it doesn't happen. He does manage to get out of the pit at one point, but the, the locals sort of chase him down. He doesn't know how to get out of the, the area. And, and it's, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's one of these sort of existential, like life is a prison movie and, and you're stuck in it. And uh, it, uh, he's, he's got this scientific mind and keeps saying that it's ridiculous to, to have a mind like mine uh, just doing nothing but just digging sand day after day after day. Uh, they should have me teach or they should have me you know, put my mind to, to use. And, and at a certain point, he, he sort of stumbles upon this um, pulling water out of the damp sand technique and uh, sort of becomes obsessed with this idea of, of perfecting this, uh, this, this water collection system. And, and figure since he's stuck here, he might as well focus on this. And to what end, he, he doesn't necessarily know, but it's, it is taking up a lot of his time and, and he's, he's really interested in carrying it out to completion. But the movie is a fairly cynical examination of... Fairly cynical, he says. ...of our, <laughs> of our hopeless lives. Um, and it's got a pretty profound message, but really the reason to see this movie is just, it's, it's visually stunning. This movie was, it was honestly too heavy for me to process. <laughs> <laughs> just because right now, it, it, too much of this movie hit home for me in that life is a goddamn sand trap. And it's up to you to be content <laughs> with nothing or be miserable trying to get out of it because you won't. Like, you know, like like sand you're gonna try you're gonna fall back in i just <laughs> that scene the 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 scene where he's ranting about his talents and how they're wasted on menial work and i mean that i feel like that hits home <laughs> <laughs> i mean so much i mean in general though i not even total i mean personally but also just in general i there's so much talent in this world that's wasted on the grind of living under the boot of society <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the, yeah. and the people who throw you down and, and hold you there, uh, and then they talk about how, you know, tough luck, oh, it's such bad luck that, you know, this happened to you, and it's like, dude, <laughs> the idea that, like, hard work gets you nowhere, <laughs> I mean, it, it basically, this movie speaks to just the most cynical side of me. I feel like after this episode, you, you can't accuse me of, of always wanting an optimistic ending. Because <laughs> this is where I just get to be like unhealthy, uh, cynical about everything. Because like, 
it's you know it's the metaphor of the bugs we're all just these little things being put on a dartboard left to die but i mean the other thing about this too is that it's it's human nature like you were saying it's human nature to to try and be content in that space and this was kind of what depressed me the most actually (laughs) was this idea that people hold themselves back by striving low and keeping themselves down because it's too difficult to get out and they sort of end up neutering themselves and you know it's a stockholm syndrome like the woman who he stuck with where you know all she wants to do is shovel sand she loves it she can't um, and you know her dream is to get a radio that's it she's objectively a happier person than he is because he's had a taste of what could have been he knows that he has more potential there's nothing in the movie that would clue us into the idea that he's an unreliable narrator for that much but she's completely content living in this crappy sand pit you know and living basically in in catering to her own depressive state that she doesn't want to leave she takes comfort in the limitations of what's been put around her which is something that he basically has to learn how to do. And it's questionable of if he ever does or doesn't. But I mean, that's something where it's like, I can think of, of countless people <laughs> that I've either known in my life or any sort of like fall from grace celebrity situation. I mean, it, it, it's like the human condition for sure. Yeah. I mean, she says, what, what would I do if I left? All I know is, is shoveling sand and, and I, I think it's interesting to contrast these two characters. She's the woman in the dune. She she goes the whole movie without even being given a name. She's just this sort of force. She just is contrasting, being just satisfied with your life and doing what you're told to do, contrasted with, with Junpai, who is always striving. And, uh, you know, he's constantly just trying to get out of this pit, trying to get back to Tokyo. And um, we never learn anything about his life in Tokyo, if he's married, if he's, you know, we know he's a teacher and that's it. And, you know, we start to wonder, well, what exactly is it that he wants to get back to Tokyo for? And uh, so the answer, and it's not optimistic at all. I I won't try and convince anybody of of that, but there is sort of this positive, (laughs) not positive, there is this, I don't, you, you sort of admire him for never ceasing to strive like he's no matter what what his situation he he just needs to try and do more always like improve his situation and that that spirit i guess makes this movie not a total depressing ordeal for me no because that that, that's that was what was so depressing is he's he's someone who sits there and strives and strives but then he gets forced back by life so often you know it's literally trying to climb out of a pit and falling back into it continually continually no matter how he tries and, and no matter which way he does things whether he plays the game whether he even tries to give in there's that really creepy scene where all of the men on the top of the dunes are looking down and they say you know like yeah well You know, he says, hey, I want to look at the sea, you know, which you kind of know that something's turning. He thinks that if he can win their trust, then maybe he can run away. And they say, we'll let you do that if you uh, have sex with your lady in front of us. And he gets to the point where he's like, you know what? Screw it. Like, yes, I'm going to do it. We're living like animals, so I'm going to do it. And of course, she says, absolutely not. And it's this really uh, harrowing scene of him attempting to rape her and her, you know, showing that she does have boundaries and that she does have... (laughs) That she doesn't think that she's living like an animal. She doesn't think that there's anything 
bad about the way that she is. She thinks this is totally fine. She's completely content. But I mean, he, he tries so often. And then in the end, he's distracted by what is arguably an accomplishment, but is not nearly, you know, he loses focus for what the, the main purpose was. And, and something that is, it's also, you know, there's, there's a chance that as there is always a chance that if you continue to strive, then something might happen. Odds are, you know, try making an effort is going to get you somewhere more than not making an effort, but he gives up on it. He starts to settle for the convenience of not having to be just crushingly disappointed every second of every day, (laughs) (laughs) which you don't blame him. And, in a way you see how happy she is. So, okay. But I don't know. I, th- I found that really deeply discouraging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, you're not wrong, but I also uh, really like <laughs> a movie that's, that's willing to be that, that honest about how awful life is. It's too honest. It's, it is it. And I agree with you. It is, it is maybe one of the most honest movies that I've <laughs> seen as far as, especially like anti-Hollywood kind of film. But as a movie, I found it a little pretentious. <laughs> and yet everything that the train did for trains, this movie does for sand. Yeah. Sand is amazing looking in this movie. There are no boring shots of sand. <laughs> if you think you know something about sand... You'll find out after watching this movie that you knew nothing. This will give you a whole whole new appreciation for what it can do. And now it's time for what we always claim is the most fun part of the episode, where we crap on a couple movies. I always get a little bit sad about it, because I always try and find the good things in movies. Except for the Americanization of Emily, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're going to start with our first Hitchcock film we've watched for Cinema 60. Yep, my kill choice is for Marnie. Which, in a lot of ways, was his final... Hurrah! It's sort of the last movie that he made that gets a lot of critical attention. He made, I think, four films after this. And and Frenzy, which in 72, where he went back to the UK, and it's a really small-scale serial killer movie that's very different from his other movies, gets gets some love. But Marnie is sometimes touted as the final Hitchcock masterpiece, and and clearly you don't feel that way about it. Yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I think Marnie is his uh, is his sloppiest and least well-made film. But I also I think that that is what makes it interesting. I will also put an asterisk in this and say that I'm not the biggest Hitchcock fan. I don't want to say he's overrated because that's bull. He, he's a talented filmmaker. And I, I mean, the movies that he does that I think are wonderful, I think are like outstandingly wonderful. And I'm always impressed with how he makes his movies. I think he's a really fascinating person. And he was so influential that you can't dismiss somebody like this as much as you might want to, as much as I might want to. And that sometimes flippantly, I don't hate the guy, but 
he weirds me out in a way that I don't, people like to talk about like the content of his movies, but I have a hard time looking at his movies and not just seeing him in a Hitchcockian psychological reverse. Like I feel like all of his movies are just about him. And the thing that makes Marnie so intolerable is that this movie just feels like it's about his dick. (laughs) It's just so (laughs) clearly about him and his like sexual proclivities. Like, and you know, it's starring Tippi Hedren, who we know now was being uh, assaulted by him, you know, while making this movie, while making The Birds. Then you have Sean Connery, who's always, <laughs> always assaulting women. <laughs> he does have a line about uh, wanting to smash her face in it at one point in this movie. Yeah, big time. It... But to be fair, she she was stealing thousands of dollars from him oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so okay so here's the thing marnie is a a serial safe robber and she does that because she dyes her hair and she fakes a social security card and she gets a job at banks or businesses where she can sit right by the safe and she does a heist and then she disappears forever into the void with all the money which she then Mostly kind of keeps for herself, but also donates to her mother who lives in Baltimore in a, in a row house with clearly not much money. And they have a very strained relationship where, the you know, she, she wants love from her mother and her mother won't touch her. Uh, and Marnie has a bunch of issues, actually, which we which we quickly find out. One of them is that she's terrified of the color red, despite the fact that she wears red lipstick throughout the entire thing. So she eventually, she gets caught in her little scheme by a guy that she mistakenly runs into twice, who is one Mark Rutland, who is Sean Connery, who uh, at first is a client of the first bank that gets robbed. And she had been pointed out by the guy who owns that bank because he's like, take a look at that dame and her gams or whatever. And then uh, he's a business owner in his own right. So then she shows up at his business looking for a job with a different hair color. And he recognizes her and is intrigued. And he eventually becomes infatuated with her. And he essentially blackmails her and kidnaps her and then rapes her. And that fixes all of her psychological issues. <laughs> Aww, he marries her before he rapes her. Doesn't that make a difference? <laughs> Uh, yeah. And so this movie already, I mean, like, obviously an obnoxious plot, but I mean, it's Hitchcock, right? We've seen this plot over and over and over again. I love it in Spellbound, (laughs) where Ingrid Bergman's the one doing it. She doesn't rape anyone, uh, notably, but, um, she certainly is not nice to old Gregory Peck, who she sort of terrorizes into getting over his issues and we also kind of see it in suspicion right with Cary grant is a creep who's gaslighting her uh, joan fontaine the thing is that those movies are just less i don't they're they have better setups i suppose or they have a little bit more information but to me in marnie it just it just feels like ragged at the seams And the plot just seems like an excuse for Hitchcock to sort of act out his sexual fantasy via Sean Connery. But what's his sexual fantasy? What what is it that you see Hitchcock doing in this movie that is clearly his own perversity? 
keeping someone as like a sex slave that he has complete power over her psychologically because she has all of these triggers that that stop her from functioning i mean like when he rapes her she goes to commit suicide and then he's like like you silly bitch like get back in the jail you know like there it's just like basically the idea of like fully and completely dominating another human being who is broken and in desperate need of uh love and then sort of showing them love via cruelty. And to me, this is just like Hitchcock's self-hatred. It's whatever his weird sexual hang-up is on torture. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just too creepy. Like, I don't know. And I mean, there is maybe like a, a degree of, like when it happens in Spellbound, it doesn't creep me out as much. So I don't know if it's Sean Connery or I don't know if it's the fact that like the power dynamics of a woman sort of mentally torturing a man to me seems more novel than vice versa, which is my own psychological issue. <laughs> but I don't, what do you like about this movie? You really like this movie. I enjoy this movie. I think it's, I love how heightened the melodrama is in it. I saw this movie back in college and thought it was boring like I didn't understand why it was so loved like it was considered a masterpiece like I just didn't see the point of it it was so artificial like it didn't feel anything like real life not that any Hitchcock does they're pure cinema I mean they're not like he's not creating these dream worlds it's not dream logic in fact everything is almost too well explained especially in these later movies like probably Spellbound is the first movie where Hitchcock really like gets totally deep into psychoanalysis and has to have his characters have some deep psychological reason for doing the things that they do and it gets revealed at the end it's almost comical like how he has this desire to explain every personality quirk of a person through through psychoanalysis and i psycho is is one of the most galling examples where you've got this great thriller that doesn't need any explanation at the end. Norman Bates's uh, psychiatrist spends 10 minutes explaining exactly why he, he dressed up as, as his mother and killed people. Uh, and it feels so unnecessary. And I almost, I like that aspect of this movie almost for that reason. Like it's so plotted out in a way where you, you're just waiting for that payoff, that like crazy thing that happened in Marnie's childhood that made her the way she is. And, uh, and of course we do, I mean, we get Bruce Dern. This, yeah. Bruce Dern is a, uh, is a, is a sailor. Her mother is a prostitute. And I, is this another one? It's, I feel like this movie is known enough that it, it doesn't hurt to spoil the ending. I mean, it's really obvious the... too. I, <laughs> it's not like, I guess you don't know the depths of, of how, horrendous the situation is but right uh, you you assume I, I haven't read the novel so I, I kind of had this idea that in the novel probably she was sexually abused as a child in this she ends up it's implied yeah um and you have you know bruce Dern sort of kisses a six-year-old marnie on the on the neck in a really uncomfortable way and you you can assume that it, it goes a lot further than that but she uh she ends up murdering him, and this is what, and she's has a psychological block. She doesn't remember having done it, but her mother sort of 
covers for her and said that she did it and this is part of why they have such a strained relationship and why Marnie's mother doesn't want her to touch her because I mean I think you know because she's a murderer but also because she's quote-unquote dirty because of what happened you know the the uh, the abuse that happened to her and uh, I don't know there are just so many big like melodramatic reveals where Sean Connery as her as her analyst like causes her to have these breakthroughs and, uh, and he's such a horrible like I, there's it, not there's not even like the facade <laughs> of like psychology here like this that's the other thing it feels like like a guy who heard about psychology and then decided to open a practice in his basement <laughs> well he read all the books yeah he tries uh -huh. to get her to read the books and actually strongly linking this film to women in the dunes sean connery is a failed zoologist he he studied to be a, a zoologist in in college but he ended up having to take over his father's business because his father was mismanaging this family business that's you know been around for generations he's an extremely wealthy uh man and and uh but he still has he, he sort of uh takes on marnie as uh as his animal i mean really it's about trying to tame her yeah and that's sort of a running theme throughout this movie there's a lot of horses in this movie and, and about taming horses and how marnie is is obsessed with horses and she you know has this one that you know the only the only thing she loves in her life is her horse and and she can ride bareback and is you know totally her her animal that she she's tamed and Sean Connery's trying to do the same to her and like the Jaguar Rundy that he's got a picture of on his desk that uh which is also hilarious he, he's managed to <laughs> domesticate <laughs> yeah so it's sort of a lot of the movie is talking about human behavior in animal terms and it, it's showing it's both showing how we're like animals and also how we're different how we're a lot more complicated than than these lower creatures and, but i wouldn't uh, treat an animal that way like that's what i may be part of it too it's like i this is i mean number one it's creepy to be like again like well you like this 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 like wild animal uh we're gonna break you to another human being and and that's how you're that's how you're gonna fall in love with me and then she does that's the thing it's not even that like all of this happens and then she gets to walk away. I will say that I saw the Met Opera production of Marnie. <laughs> I heard this was an opera. Yeah, and it was uh, it was pretty neat. But um, the opera version of it, and maybe this is more based on the book, I don't know. But the opera gives her more agency. And it doesn't focus so much on her being fixed by that forced affection and kidnapping and rape. And it it's more about her coming to terms with herself having experienced like multiple horrendous <laughs> situations like it's not completely you know it still has issues but like it it i thought did a better job of treating her like a human being i think this movie actually does a really good job at having you feel for marnie like n never do you want to give up on her like she's Frigid, which in uh, 1964 is the worst thing a woman can be, is a uh, you know, <laughs> sex-hating, man-hating woman. But it's definitely acknowledged in this movie that what Mark Rutland is doing to Marnie is horrifying. Like, he's not a great guy. Like, what he's doing is really kind of sketchy. Like, it's coming from this place where he's trying to help her, but he's doing it in a really suspect way. Like, she's the thief criminal, but he's the villain in this movie, but also the... You know the hero in a way who who does end up he gets everything he wants his flaw as he explains it and as another character points out to him is that he 
spends too much time on these broken women you know it's like that's his like nah shucks you know yeah you got me like i just love him you know it's like but you're not talking about what he's doing with them i mean i i also want to bring up that um richard brody of the new yorker wrote a pretty good article about this movie where he kind of talks about the fact that he finds this movie really interesting because he thinks it's like the most ultimate hitchcockian film he says that his films are the quote the the beautiful rendering of his own ugly fury i agree with him but he seems to get more of an enjoyment out of seeing this ugly fury than i do it sounds like i'm kind of in the same place there well but he also talks about this idea about the cult of hitchcock which presses directors ideas and critics taste towards this uh, hyper rational craft and conceals his tormented frenzy tends to thrust some filmmakers impulses and the critical response to some of the best modern films to the sidelines they borrow the repression without sharing in what's repressed and and basically saying that you know that nobody seems to analyze why he's making the same movie over and over and over again about like torturing women <laughs> and nobody ever really talks about how this is clearly his own like sexual kink and that he loved to talk about how his movies were made but he didn't like to analyze them so much he didn't like to get into the reason of why he made them and i i feel like there there is again there's that sort of that britishness uh, stoicism maybe that you know that there's so much that's like so clearly on display here that's that's like really toxic and creepy and yet everyone's like ah it's it's so you know it's so wild i love it and you know, I'm not saying any, you're a, anyone's a bad person for, you know, sort of indulging in this sort of darker, wild craziness that, you know, is happening on in, in a movie. But like this shit did spill over into his real life. <laughs> I think a lot of analysis brings Hitchcock's psychological problems into the subject matter. I think, you know, when he's talking about his own movies like in the Truffaut book, he's talking about technique and how he accomplished things. And he's talking about biographical details, but he doesn't talk about his own obsessions and why he keeps returning to the same themes over and over. But his most famous biography, The Dark Side of Genius, is, is I think is very much about probing his dark nature and why he keeps returning to these themes. And I think that the real Hitchcock fans love the movies because they see you know, it's such a psychological profile of this guy. I don't go that far. I'm not the biggest Hitchcock fan in the world. I, I really enjoy some. But, and it also takes a few viewings for me to enjoy a lot of his movies. Like the first time through, they just seem so artificial, like in the, in this world that doesn't resemble reality in any way that it, it's hard to connect to. You know, and I think that's why he's such a cinephile's dream because they really, they're movies that reward repeated viewing because you're watching technique and you're watching them for for the psychological aspect i also think that tippy hedron is pretty great in this movie and i never gave her any credit for being much of an actor she really makes you feel for marnie as the center of this movie you she she's what holds it together for me really you know, the, the male gaze is always thrown around with Hitchcock and, and these, you know, his obsession with these blondes. But I think she makes for one of the stronger centers in this in this movie. And I think having the female being the, the central figure with the, with the psychological problem, maybe for the first time, it's almost always males in, in Hitchcock's movies. But I, I think that's what really worked for me this time through watching Marnie is that in 
making a movie through a woman's eyes. She doesn't feel as objectified as the women in, in most of his other movies for that reason. And it, it has a real female perspective that his other movies don't. Oh, I don't know if I agree. I mean, like, I, I agree that she's good. I think that she does a great job, but I don't get any sense of her perspective other than, you know, like, don't rape me. <laughs> she feels very cartoonish and... and uh, I just like, well, so I mean, again, like part of the reason I don't like this movie is that it just feels so ragged. Like there's so many scenes where it feels like a low budget film, like the scene where she gets thrown off the horse. There's some rear projection stuff that's pretty terrible. Oh, yeah. Every time she's on a horse, it's a rear projection. And then there's all of these like there's this little montage where she gets thrown off the horse that, you know, everything is perfectly framed. It's like if you were to stop it. I can see the storyboard, you know, it's like I can. And that's what, again, it, to me is what makes Hitchcock interesting is that you can see how he planned this whole thing out, but it looks awful. It looks terrible. And there, there's a handful of scenes that just don't look good. And I don't know if it's the fact that, you know, this is like the end of his career. I don't know if this was like budgetary, like it was, or he's trying something new or, you know, maybe it just straight up didn't age well, but there's just so much that's undercutting her performance, like the stupid red thing where the whole everything flashes red and she gets wide eyed and comatose over stuff that, you know, she plays it well, like she's doing a good job, but it just it undercuts the rest of it and come, makes her come across as a lot cornier, whereas Sean Connery is sort of the rock of the movie in the stable one, even though he's a complete psychotic. <laughs> This movie is like, I just think it's a kind of a failed movie. I just It's got a few great set pieces, like when she's robbing the the safe and it's kind of a split screen. The screen is split down the middle and you can see her in the office robbing the safe and you can see the, the cleaning woman on, on the other side and they're, they're sort of the, the same size on the screen and showing the parallel between them and it's just this long, steady shot. And he also wrings a lot of suspense out of it because she wasn't expecting that woman to be there and, and uh, is she going to get away with it? It does feel a bit old-fashioned, the rear projection and, and some of the really obvious older Hollywood techniques seem a little out of date in 1964, but I think that's true for most of the classic directors who were still trying to make a go of it in the 60s. The movies feel old-fashioned, but occasionally they can overcome that. But not in this one. You know. <laughs> This is right. this is dirty old grandpa still making the same old movies made over and over and over again for me. I just it's just bland. I mean, I, again, like I I do like the all the robbing scenes are are pretty neat, and I like the general concept of her as a character. But uh, skip it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just happy that I enjoyed it much more this time than the first time I saw it. And now we get to the final film, La Ronde. with the Max O'Fool's version from 1950, which is the much better version. This one is directed by Roger Vadim and uh, stars everybody. I mean, it's a, it's an ensemble piece. It's it's kind of ten separate stories that are loosely linked together. It's um, you've actually you've got five women and five men, and 
you know, you've got one couple in one movie and then the, the man moves on to the next story with a different woman and that woman moves on to another man. And the, so it's, it's, it's the circle of love. How to get an STD 101. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think that the STD idea is, is a lot more clear in the O Fools version. This one seems like it's just Vadim trying to titillate and not very successfully. <laughs> like, I think there's, there's very little, you know, as much flesh and seduction and you know people in bed together as there is in this film it's there's nothing very erotic at all about it nothing literally nothing it's the most horny and boring movie i think any frame of uh, a woman in the dunes is even just the shots of the sand is more erotic than anything (laughs) in this movie although there is one moment and it's one of the anna karina scenes where she's the maid in uh, in Jean Claude Brielli's house. He's the he's the son and has stayed home, and uh, so he's got got her to himself. And and he's saying, "Oh, lie down on this couch." And and she's she can't say no because she's a maid, and she also doesn't want to say no. But it, you know, society says that she should be saying no to a man who's being this forward about trying to you know sleep with her. But so so there there are moments where she's on this couch and. You don't see uh, Brielli, who's who's like off screen, and it's just focused on her face, and you don't know exactly what he's doing to her down there. And she's there's a moment of uh, you know female desire there, where it's nothing is very explicit, but it's the one moment I could find in this thing where where it was at all sexy. You just like Anna Karina in like the cliche sexy maid outfit, <laughs> where she's wearing like a giant white bow. And has that like demure, like black silk costume. Well, yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. She's, you know. I mean, Jane Fonda is beautiful in this movie, but so boring. (laughs) Yeah. And she and Vadim fell in love during the making of this movie. They got married shortly after. He was a creep, which is obvious from every single movie he's ever made. I don't, I'm not a fan of Vadim. I'm trying to think of what I've liked from him at all. I kind of like In God Created Woman uh, with Bardot, his first bombshell wife. He sort of put everything he had in him into that movie, and I think it works. It's not deep, but it's, you know, it's I like the way it's put together, and it's got a good energy. But yeah, none of his erotic movies that he made after that have done anything at all for me, including Barbarella, which I enjoy on a certain level, but it's a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the one scene I liked was Jane Fonda with her dumb husband who she's cheating on. And he's going on and on about like how miserable cheating wives are. And she's like, you know, playing dumb and basically getting him horny for the fact that she's so dumb. (laughs) And he has that line where he's like, life is serious and the pleasure and the pleasure is only the dessert. And she says, I love dessert, (laughs) (laughs) which was stupid, but funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I be, yeah. Besides, like, a couple of interesting... There's good costumes. Like, you know, there's attractive people. I think there's much more attractive women than men. The men are pretty un- uniformly boring in this. Yeah, I mean, I like Briali, but, you know, he's not... You know, I don't know. He looks like a dope in this, and... Um, <laughs> he's more fun in the Karina scene. He doesn't... He's not interesting at all in the in the scene he has with Jane Fonda. Yeah, agreed. And... I mean, that's a real problem. This the, the movie's so repetitive. All ten of these stories are so similar. It's just a seduction and the, 
you know, like, you know, every, every one of these seductions is going to end in, in sex. Uh, and there's no, like, nobody's really fighting it. Nobody's trying to say, no, I don't think so. Like you, you, these women, and it's almost exclusively the, the, the men seducing the women, the women like are, you know, have come to these, these private apartments of these men knowing what's going to happen. But then you still have to sit through this, you know, 15 minutes of, seduction that's just like the last scene of seduction um and it's and that's yeah i mean that's my real problem with this movie is not just the lack of sexiness it's the repetitiveness of the sexiness vadim is just he he's like the male gaze pioneer for that sort of sly hey guys here's what we're all here for you know and then someone gets their boobs groped or someone you know takes their shirt off kind of thing like that that type of filmmaking that at least from 64 onward we're only going to see more and more and more of and especially in the 70s but that stuff is so boring to me like and it's, it's so obnoxious too and I feel like most of his films are really that like how far can he get away with it and it turns out he can because you know everyone's a guy in the room and and yeah, I'd love to see a little bit more skin on that. You know, it's like, it's just bland, though. It's just so boring. There's no excuse for it, you know? And I get that they're, like, all having sex, but it's like, you know, like, no one in, on screen is having fun. <laughs> Very rarely do any of these encounters <laughs> yeah. feel fun. It's usually one person kind of having fun and the other person sort of just dealing with it. I wouldn't call... Vadim, an exploitation filmmaker, is you know his movies aren't exploitative. He's so single-minded; like all he cares about is sex. And in a way, I sort of appreciate that. He's like, you know, Standing we're for France. we're we're animals. You know, here's another movie where you know we're we're just animals. All we care about is sex. So why should I beat around the bush? Let's let me just get get down to business. Here's this is what we're here for. So let me just show that. You know, he's not the type to throw in a, you know, a shower scene for, for no particular reason. It's always like, you know, there's, there's one bathing scene in this, but it's sort of motivated. The, the aging actress is trying to, maybe the one scene where it's a woman seducing the man, she's trying to seduce her, the soldier who's her admirer. She, um, you know, has always admired her on the stage and has come to her room to visit her. And she's sort of, uh, taking a bath right in front of him. And, you know, it's meant to titillate, but that's the subject of the scene. It's not gratuitous in a way because that's what the movie's about. So, you know, go ahead, Vadim. Yeah, well, but they couldn't do anything too gratuitous. But then when you watch his films as they move on to the 70s and, and onward, it, it only gets worse. Like, which is me projecting on, you know, it hasn't happened yet on Laron, but I don't know. This is another one where you can tell his sexual history from the way that he depicts sex, which is women sort of begrudgingly like dealing with it <laughs> as men kind of go to town or some woman basically basically just the the genders swapped in in the same situation <laughs> but the women always want sex in in this movie like none of them are being forced to do anything they don't want to do but there is and maybe this is in the original arthur schnitzler play is that society has demanded that they are coy about it that they have to sort of seem like oh I don't know if I want to I this is this is probably not a good idea I'm gonna my mother's expecting me at home I should probably leave now but all the time just 
really wanting to do it. And but it's just a sort sort of play acting where they're there. Oh, I I'm gonna let this man go through the motions of seducing me, even though I already want him. And and you know, and I kind of like to watch him make this effort to sort of win me over, even though he had me at hello sort of thing. I don't know. They all feel like the sort of hooker with a heart of gold. Like who who's in the first uh, you know act of this? I guess you can say is they all just sort of feel like and the final. Yo, you want sex? Okay, I'm gonna go through the song and dance. And uh, all right, all right, sex time. You know, like it's just very. It's just I don't know. This, this just so rarely is anyone having fun unless they're you know the slut. You know, like unless they're boning everyone. But even then, they're you know they're sort of looked down upon for it. Which is, again, it's like, I just think if you're going to do a movie about how great sex is, like, why don't you, like, show it? <laughs> Not, like, physically. I don't need to see sex. But, like, you know, just have more fun with it. Like, geez, I don't know. Like, I again, like, I think if you're yeah, just, like, a that's... dude who wants to see a bunch of, like, hot chicks, you know, and topless on a bed, then, like, this is your movie. Like, you got it. Uh, you could do a lot better you than this movie, actually, if that's better. what you want. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I yeah you know, I don't have a problem with the subject matter. Uh, it's it's, no, it's uh, the depiction of it. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he doesn't do anything interesting with it. It's uh, you know we're all animals. All we really want is sex. You know, men and women. But these are the games that we play. This is how it it happens over and over and over ten times, ten ten versions of the same thing, and the movie's over. It's almost impressive how little is told in this like two hour runtime of like several different characters. <laughs> Be like some of them have stories, but they don't they don't go anywhere. Like they're totally meaningless. Yeah, there are moments you remember, but you don't remember the character stories at all. I remember the outfits, the beds. There's that nice clamshell bed like that. And it, I I mean I guess the interest is seeing how. You see the, the character first in one story and then in a second story and sort of seeing how their attitude changes from one to the other. But it doesn't really reveal anything. It seems like there's an opportunity there to really do something, but the movie doesn't care enough about that, I guess. So what can we say about the movies of 1964, at least the ones that we've selected? I thought it was kind of interesting that all of these movies were sort of dealing with the psychology of being... <laughs> I know it's really general, but, you know, it's like the, the train in, in Americanization of Emily is sort of dealing with the, the psychological toll of war and the woman in the dunes. So we <laughs> so the whole thing is psychological and being stuck in place. Marnie, in a way, is kind of about being stuck in a place and tortured and, <laughs> you know, also making the best of that situation. And, uh, you know, Laurent's about how you, you know, you got to get laid. There is kind of an idea in, in all of these where we're stuck in our situation, where we're forced into doing things that we don't think that's what we want to do, but, but we end up doing them anyway. I mean, the train for sure, Burt Lancaster doesn't care about this art, but ends up saving it all. And in No Skin in Welcome or No Trespassing, he, uh, he doesn't like the, the director and would be happy to leave this camp and just hang out with the locals who he likes better, but he ends up you know, having to hide back in the camp so his grandmother doesn't find out. So he's kind of stuck under the stage for, for half the movie. So he's sort of... Right, he's worried about the know, shame of, with... of uh, having failed out of summer camp. Yeah, and Charlie is... Uh, he's in this position where he has to constantly 
please his uh, his admiral, and, and it just gets you know just gets more and more elevated until he's stuck doing the very courageous thing that he was opposed to all along. But you know, I, I mean, I guess this is how it works with movies that. You know, you've got a hero who wants something, but it turns out, oh, it's actually something else that they really want. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not sure. there, But there is there is this idea of being trapped in these, in our own humanity. And the, talking about the, the human condition through through these sort of situations that we're, we're forced into against our will. I think there's a little bit of a difference in that um, it's, it's about being trapped, but also knowing that you're trapped. You know, at the point in which you've, you've recognized the situation and you've recognized and you have time to question it. You have time, you know, in, in the train, he's has time to question whether or not this is worth, uh, you know, the amount of deaths or, you know, how, how many people should be dying or is once you've started killing people, do you have to just continue to kill people? Is, that, is it, you know, like, is that how it works? And Right. That's an interesting question in that movie, too, is that. Oh, now that people have died for this, will it? You know, their deaths will be in vain if I don't carry this out to its completion. Right. It just ends up killing more people. I think that that's kind of an interesting. It's interesting that all these movies kind of deal with like roughly that. (laughs) Even in in Welcome or No Trespassing, it's like, what do you do in this situation? Kind of thing. This child sort of grappling with: Do I admit defeat or do I (laughs) go back there and you know and just do it however I can? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, overall, I mean, obviously we sort of semi-arbitrarily chose these. I mean, part of the reason that we do these uh, Kiss, Mary Kills is because it's fun to kind of see what all came out in the same year sometimes. And it's also fun uh, to talk about things that we actually like <laughs> and the things we don't like. It is interesting to watch something like that's so, you know, sort of... It, experimental you you called it pretentious like um woman in the dunes and put that next to marnie by hitchcock which has is so you know such an artificial old hollywood you know studio bound sort of movie and how they're stylistically they they're at such extremes but they're both sort of this heightened style but of two two very different natures but they both compare human behavior to animal behavior in a very uh, explicit way. I mean, it's it's very, like, right on the screen, we're seeing, you know, side by side animals, you know, acting the same way that humans do. So we're, we're meant to draw those comparisons. So it's, you know, it's interesting how in Japan and America, these two random movies that, that are seemingly very different are, are actually have a lot in common. For sure. Though I will say that my definition of experimental versus pretentious, <laughs> there is some subtlety there. It's not, they're not one and the same. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's, uh, it's back to our respective sand pits. I did ignore my shoveling in the yard today <laughs> because I was preparing for this podcast. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.